We have a question here. Please say something about ecological and climate breakdown. Triple Gem is a refuge for us during these times, but is there a Buddhist perspective that could help us to deal with these crises going forward? Well, <laughs> if only. <laughs> Certainly there are Buddhist solutions to this, uh, this issue, but the chances of them being acted upon are not that great. <laughs> no. and simply speaking, uh, you know, just not harming creatures uh, uh, would be great. That would help a lot. And then sharing resources, dana, which is a fundamental Buddhist precept, Buddhist understanding you share, then uh, that would help a lot. Uh, just to share one's so much more, because a lot of wealth is, is bottled up in a tiny percentage of the population. And morality, so often we are... Uh, we just can't trust our in- industries are lying to us, selling us stuff that this, that, and the other. Governments are deceitful or prevaricate, and you know, so there's just a sense of honesty and that serving, you know, serving people rather than trying to rip them off all the time <laughs> and exploit people. Uh, that would be enormously beneficial. And of course, the renunciation, which means try to live more simply. Look at what you need. You don't, a monk is an example of don't really need that much. Now you don't deliver as a monk, but still you can recognize, well, you know, don't need that much. And uh, so just reducing one's, one's consumer profile would be enormously beneficial. Because Earth, though it's big, it's, it's still finite. And seven billion of us gobbling away at it, it just can't cope. Exhausted, and uh, you know, and then just recklessly producing products that poison the air and the water. Uh, you know, is very short-term benefit. So these are things that could be addressed. We could live a modest, comfortable lifestyle. But we've got enough intelligence to send take photographs of Pluto. You know, we can send Voyager, whatever it was, out to the end of the solar system. We can smash atomic particles under the Alps for some reason or another. <laughs> We've got plenty of savvy. Couldn't we look after our own planet with it? No, we know, we're not surely we could imply our ingenuity to look after that. So, you know, Buddhist solution would be, well, you, you know, use the human mind because we have this tremendous resource for compassion and clarity and wisdom and sharing and generosity and kindness. Why don't we use that and leave with that and just use the material things secondary to our primary human gift? And <laughs> but on a more uh, pragmatic level, I personally I sense that such 
real solutions as will come around will come around really from quite like grassroots level uh, people just gathering together gathering together sharing helping each other supporting and trying to create an alternative and, and, and not forming to or putting pressure even putting pressure on governments to to bring around change now I think that's what could happen happened with slavery happened with um, CFCs a few years back right? so that that's that's the pragmatic solution because now I mean you've got like 99% of scientists are saying look we're in deep trouble here uh, you know most anybody who's got some savvy and telling the truth will agree you know I mean <laughs> what's stopping it happening there's like you know the 1% people who've got vested interest in keeping the thing going and if you could just tweak that shift that sure we could do a tremendous amount to to uh, make changes meanwhile you know the uh my my practice because i'm very aware of this i've written a book on it so i'm saturated in the, the information is to not let one's spirits go down, not to not never give up, you know, and to keep this change of consciousness has to occur. So, starts with a change of consciousness. Change of consciousness means a social change, social change means a government change. So, what we can do is we can all. You know, we can all contribute to changing consciousness, to elevating consciousness to something that's more, less exploitive, less domineering, and more mutual and more caring. And the, you know, the critical mass of that—that's what we can do. As, as uh, you know, people who are interested in this practice, teachings, and then you know, maybe social change can come around. It's already happening. Uh, it needs to grow stronger, more of it, and uh, that to me is what uh, how change will come around. Mm. One of the most helpful factors of mobilizing the energy of commitment translate intention into action i.e. to break the momentum of addictive patterning well there are several helpful factors um, one is good friends you know well it's definitely good friends who just keep not giving up on you and holding you and trying to check your habits and so forth and giving you why we get addicted why we get compulsive uh, some sort of, you know, instability or searching for some happiness, and good friends will will provide us with security, stability, friendship, and happiness, and that certainly will be a big help. And then the other thing is to first of all to keep recollecting that you can do it. A friend of mine had a big drink problem. And he said, it, really all he had to do was not pick up the glass. 
<laughs> you just you don't pick up the glass. You won't. You won't have. <laughs> I just keep 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 doing it. I just feel that surge. Look the other way. Take it out. You don't go near it. Look the other way. You know, suck a candy or something, but just keep shutting off that 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 avenue to to the addictive thing and seek support for it. Also we can um, if we really feel in our bodies, in the bodily energy, just the experience of compulsion. Clearly the objects that we we compel addictive to have got a certain glow, otherwise we wouldn't be addicted to them. They start out being pretty glowing, you know, and then they get less glowing, but we fall into the sense of our helpless. It's got a magnetic pull. You know, we started off playing with it and then it became a demon that, that took us. Now if we begin to first of all recognise what that feels like, both psychologically the feeling of hopeless, useless, can't help it, and the self loathing that can occur with that. You know, and uh, and then of course, the problem with that is it can make you feel you can't change it because you are a useless addict uh, or compulsive. Uh. But if you come into your body, body energy, you can feel that kind of drive or compression. And again, this is really why I put so much emphasis on that because uh, you know, if you just keep practicing with just coming down into your feet, walking up and down, and opening the space around your body then the compulsive patterning of your mind as it plays out in your body can't take hold because a compulsive mindset's always got a certain bodily contraction to it, drive. And if you have a way to discharge that, that drive by referencing your entire body and beginning to work on your energy, you can get some anchorage. You can feel that down again. If it makes sense to you, because we're all addicted to some respect, you know. Um, you know, it's very difficult to be silent. It's very difficult not to have to want to read something or look at the phone. We get twitchy. You know, nothing to do. So we've all got certain you know, hooks. <laughs> so how how do you deal with that? Well, you can. Criticize yourself, but it doesn't do you any good. But if you come into your body and just feel that pressure, and then find a place in your body where you can anchor and just let, let the tide flow through. It's not comfortable, but it can be done. And when you make a, a resolution um, to, to stop something, it's no good just thinking it, it's not strong enough. Because you, you can think it, you can think the opposite. You've got to say it, preferably out loud. Ideally, at a place where you're, where you're grounded, or in a shrine, or with someone you hold with respect, and you say it, and you say it until your mind gets it, and you feel something, that's it, I'm not. So I made, I guess I'm no more addicted than anybody else. 
Um, but I would make, often I'd make these resolutions, and you make resolutions as a monk, it's one of your practices, you might make resolution, okay, not going to take any sugar for three months or something, or give up coffee, or I won't read a newspaper, things that just kind of take away, things you just find yourself going in that aren't that good for you. And so you make these resolutions, and you either to refrain from that, or to do something, like I made a resolution to not lie down for three months, so that's called a sitter's practice, which is very tough, because you don't get much sleep. But then I... <laughs> why you do that? It's a crazy thing to do. <laughs> I, won't, I won't go into why, but... Yeah. Uh, oh, I found the sort of time I was getting really kind of bored and negative and grumpy, and then I made a resolution that Every morning, no matter what, I'd get up at uh, 3.30 or 4, something early, very early before the morning puja, and I'd go out into the field, and I'd bow. I'd go around the stupa, bowing around the stupa. Just do it. And the reason was to just kind of kick my butt, if you like. <laughs> so I did it, and uh, I did it for three months or so. Sometimes it's raining or it's cold or whatever, and your mind's going, "What am I doing this for?" Because you said you do it. To make such vows, I'm not saying you should, but any kind of vow really helps to get into a place where you, you do it, and so your mind goes, "Oh, yeah, it's good. No, no, it's not. It's a good idea. You do it to your mind. Well, maybe I'll try. No, that's not enough. You do it. You say it again, and the mind goes, "Well, maybe no. You say it again." Oh, no, you say it again, you're doing it. Silence. <laughs> Got it. Sometimes it's helpful to actually do something with your body, like stand up and fold your arms. Right, that's it. Finish, no arguments. On with it, do it. And uh, you, can, you can break things. In, in, uh, you can break habits. It's great if a few of you get together, you know, you've got some support for it, but those are helpful. I once made a, a, a resolution to not complain, even in my mind. <laughs> that was interesting, because plenty of things to complain about. Other people not doing this or doing that, and you get it, you can't do it. Not even, not even think it. Stop. That was great because after a while, uh, I started to love everybody. Because <laughs> 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 you kind of see, oh yeah, I guess he's a, he's a nuisance. Uh, you got to love him. <laughs> Why? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't have to make sense. <laughs> You just love, love them because <laughs> that's the what happens when you don't <laughs> criticize them. Cut it off before it picks up speed. Yeah. Some, you, you shift from here down to here. And just, oh, compassion. Yeah. Struggling, confused people. Okay. So that, that's, that was very, very worthwhile resolution. That one. You kind of wear out some habits. You sustain it long enough then you know, particular habitual patterns carve tracks in the mind through which the mind's energy runs. It's called sankara.
uh, what you think about, what you continually follow, carves a kind of track in your mind. So your mind runs down that track. Yeah? So once you've barred that track, and the mind starts to want to go down it, and it can't, and eventually it gives up. <laughs> doesn't do quite the same thing. I'm trying to be as honest as I can. I do feel sometimes deep disappointed, irritated. I don't understand that. That's, you know. But it's different. It's not the kind of whining, whinging, fault-finding mm. thing. Well, this is actually quite an important principle in um, in practice, and it's called this um, one of the what they call the parami, which means sort of transcendent virtues. And these are generosity, morality, renunciation, uh, wisdom, um, patience, energy, truthfulness. Loving kindness. Mm. Not uh, forget. Not forgetfulness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, resolution and equanimity. The ten, the ten virtues. So that you, and you pick those up, and you think, well, actually, how can I sustain the quality of uh, generosity? So it's not just material things. It means I decide I'm going to give you time. I'll share my time. I'll share my understanding. And so you carve that particular track. If you do that habitually, you don't really ask for very much of yourself. You've forgotten about it. You don't get the why me thing going on because your mind doesn't operate that way. Uh, if you really cultivated, uh, you know, resolution around uh, um, patience, for example. Recognizing the value of a mind that's uh, tolerant and uh, doesn't cut corners, is prepared to be uh, resilient. Recognizing the value of that that quality makes more resilient, more tolerant, more open-minded. Then I determine this in order to cut off reckless behavior, uh, short-term thinking, cutting corners. And you've got to couch it as much in there's something in it for you. It's not you mustn't be naughty, but actually your heart will grow. Yeah. And uh, your heart will grow. And that's what they're for. Growing. Yeah. And you see there's a lot one can gain in one's own heart from that uh, practice like that. such an important uh, blessing for people to be patient with each other you know like why is she going on about this stop doing that it doesn't have to be that good but you feel that restless energy that's not good I could just sustain a little more patience and then patience with yourself is really important. You know, why don't you ever get it together, you numbskull? It's a long haul. <laughs> <laughs> Just patient with your shortcomings and the 
and mental upheavals and the kind of you know difficult moods. Just bear with yourself a little bit longer. Mind gets very sweet, very sweet. So it goes both ways, you see, as we cut off something, you're also building up something else. So that almost the territory of the mind is it doesn't run down that way because you create this other deep valley it can run down. It can run down the, the you know, the truthfulness valley or the loving kindness valley instead of, you know, the other one. <laughs> so, so you carve the other route deeper, it, it cuts it off. You see what I mean? Because just telling yourself not to do something isn't good enough. You've got to provide an alternative that feels better, that you can manage. Did the Buddha describe the firm centre in any other particular ways? Is it the same as the concept of the ground of our being? Um, Well, I coined the phrase firm centre because it's, you know, it means something. It could mean groundedness, that's part of it. It can mean uh, having resolution, you know. It can mean having integrity, it can mean a number of things. It means we've got a, we've got a reference point that stays. You know, and it's both moral and uh, bodily and uh, um, relational, you know. I do not allow ill will to knock me around. I stand my ground. I don't let that take over. This is something I can trust, something I value. It brings up the best in me. This is my centre. If something's taken over that, I wash it very closely and guard it until that centre becomes strong. Now, in some, this can be referred to like as any kind of determination or resolution has that quality to it. Um, uh, or a more special level, it would say that you know samadhi itself, the consolidation of the mind, the concentration of the mind, is reckoned to be a very firm, steady state. But I'd like to expand it beyond just that into a, into something, a reference point for our, our daily lives. So it's the principle of commitment, essentially. Mm. You know, when we say to, we take refuge in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, that's already. There's an eye, you know. I mean, you can't do, you can't, you can't do that. Do that, you know. You may go to sleep again, but you can't really. Once you've seen it and known it, you kind of deviate, but you, it keeps bringing you back because you know better. <laughs> and so that the more you go to that and firm it up, then that becomes a firm center. Karma is created through. Every thought and action, would it be correct to, to assume that no karma exists within the enlightened state? Well, what's the enlightened state? If we say Nibbana, there's no thought, no action in Nibbana, so there's definitely no, no karma in that. <laughs> it's, it's the stopping of all intention. So when the mind stops all intention, this is one way of defining Nibbāna. So that's that's particularly the awakened beings. 
but we can also recognize that after his awakening the Buddha lived a pretty active life uh, you know, walking, teaching, uh, advising for 45 years so he certainly thought and acted quite a bit um, so, but then you know, this understanding what karma is is uh, he acted but because there was no inheritance and result so it's like writing in water the act is gone whereas you know because the mind just doesn't hold on to anything whereas most of us will act and there'll be a residue left so the karma produces what's called vipaka or a result the buddha's live in emptiness which means they act and the action is finished and there's no result they have no result in their mind free result with some of the disciples you know who, who became arhats they reap results of previous karma so, you know, previous lives so they didn't do any, you know they still had inheritance of uh, unfortunate results <laughs> Can I ask you something specific to South Africa and South Africans? I find that um, we live in a particularly stressful environment in South Africa. Um, by that I mean we see violence very close to us. Most of us know of someone who has been hurt or beaten up or attacked or killed or experienced some hardship from um, the very violent society in which we live. And also we have our, our political history, which means that there's a lot of past resentment um, that is being thrust upon us from many different people close to us, live close within our proximity. Um, just in, in my own small world, I mean, I see the stress my husband lives with. Um, every night when he goes to sleep, if the air condition's on, he says he doesn't like that because he can't hear if somebody's going to break okay. in and attack us. So would you have any words of advice for us specifically here? to how we can better um, maybe cope with that level of stress. Mm. Well, certainly coming to places like this is pretty essential because uh, you know fear is the number one trigger. Mm-hmm. Nothing can trigger you so much as and it has to be, because, you know, for any sentient being, the most important thing is to stay alive. <laughs> so fear is the number one trigger. And uh, when that's in the air, then, you know, your, your system is always going to be slightly on the lookout for that, uh, wired for it. So certainly you've got to have sanctuaries you can go to where you 
possible just to freshen up, you know, and to bring yourself out of that defensive state. That's, you know, if you like the Buddhist, like the Buddhist answer to it, or a Buddhist response to it, it's not an answer exactly, it's a response. I suppose the other thing is, you, you know, you just have to take the reasonable precautions that you can, you know, the you know, precautions that you can, and acknowledge that, and then deliberately relax. You know? I would say, if you're, what, you know, what you're telling me, this is obviously a, a situation which I don't know. I've not been in that, really. So I can't say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, certainly I've had my life threatened, you know, you know that, with an axe to my head. That's pretty intense. That's, yeah, it doesn't get much more intense. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just you know, think, well, not much I can do, so what I can do is relax and discharge. Um, firm centre. Firm centre, yeah. It's more about the heart because as the fear grows, the heart wants to close. Yeah. That's what you, that's what you must be on guard against. So how do you, you know, challenges to keep open with all these threats. Well, that's what you must acknowledge. Um, that, in fact, one day something will kill us. If it's not a virus or something, our lives are fragile. And uh, that's inevitable. Um, it may be, I hope it won't be today, I hope it won't be tomorrow, but it is coming. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, if we recollect one of the things one is encouraged to recollect is one's mortality, inevitable death, and do this as a regular meditation. You know, this is inevitable, it will come. It may be tomorrow, it may be this, the next day. You know? uh, and then, so, okay, I cannot stop this happening. What can I do is I can go into my heart, recollect the good that's happened to me, the good I've done, my virtues, make the heart big. Because this is punya. If you regularly recollect the good things you have done, however small, they're often small actions coming from a definite good intention. It doesn't matter the action, it's the intention that counts. Yeah. And the things that are good that have been done to you. You're not living in a totally nasty world, you know, there is generosity in sharing, I am blessed. And this causes the heart to grow. Unskillful things that I stop doing, heart grows. When the heart grows big, 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 the shadow of fear passes away. That's, you know, I'm not saying it's the total solution, but that's the Buddhist benefit. It's always good, to, you know, if you've got community, collective, so the network of you know, so you're not just totally isolated as a collective, we look after each other, we share, 
we keep on watch out for each other in the community that all supported naturally is that is that helpful for you because essentially you know it's the meditation is that to really understand this you know you're saturating your adrenaline or whatever it is yeah. and to just find ways can you discharge this can you go can you feel now I am safe what does that feel like and get, get your system to have some reference to safe <laughs> you know so it knows this is the okay I, ha- I have to be in this state because I'm where I am but there's also this other reference which is I'm safe and so there's some way one can journey from the, the tense state to the safe state. There's no no way of there's no acknowledged safe state. There's no way to discharge to, you know. So that so we're trying to get that experience in our bodies of where the adrenaline can switch off and where the tension can release. And so you know, that's that's absolutely necessary absolutely necessary to do that um, because uh, there's no other way there's no other way all the safety precautions you, you can think of will still not make you feel safe <laughs> if those chemicals are running mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of insecurity around America is very unsafe a lot of threat a lot of fear very fear-soaked country because there's only guns more guns than people now got something like I don't know 380 million people and there's 400 million guns so (laughs) traffic lights they walk down the street you know it's no longer reported there's been over a like over 180,000 mass killings in a year where people just go and shoot up 16 people. So a mass killing is more than five or six people at a time. That's just, that's so common now, it's hardly even noticed. You're just going to school and, you know, shoot people up. Kids, shoot, shoot kids to pieces and, you know, shopping malls, nightclubs. So that's, that's, that's there, that's in the, in the atmosphere. You know, everybody's got their handgun in the in the glove compartment of their car with the gun. Just like that, and then this simply uh, hyped up um, love, physical violence, verbal violence. You know, people don't feel safe with each other. And, uh, you know, police shoot. You know, police shoot people down the street, mostly black people, so they don't, they don't feel safe. Even if you wander into a black area as a white person, you don't feel safe. And, you know, where does it stop? Where does it stop? You know, where does it stop? You know, Cambodia, where there's huge, half the country died killed by the other half you know, half the population I think it's half the population wiped out by the other half so and then all these mines and bombs in the, in the ground and, uh, so you know, the whole country is totally traumatised 
and the killing was of the most uh, mindless, vicious kind. You know? And um, you know, there's some of these horrible tall swing, the big J. Well, actually, you wanted to die because it'd be better than staying here. People are asking to be killed because I'd sooner die than have another day here. It's just too horrible. So that kind of thing in in the atmosphere. So uh, and then you know, <laughs> this, uh, they had these peace yantras. By by a monk or two would start walking and get gathering, walk behind him and just walk through, and just just keep walking through a, through a war torn area, and just keep walking, and just keep peace, keep walking, walking. You know, of course. And just that quality, that fact alone, people would, you know, a grenade gets thrown in and didn't, didn't blow up. They said, look, Buddha saved us, you know. <laughs> they just do that, just to kind of put some sort of harmless and non-violent energy into the, into the, into the community, you know, and prepare to, I've got no arms, I've got no weapons. Uh, you know, wearing the robe, just enough to, 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 that was their contribution. You know, to, this is the place where it stops. And it doesn't stop anywhere else. It doesn't stop in retaliation and retribution and so forth. It doesn't stop in right and wrong. It only stops when it stops. <laughs> you know. uh, to me, that, that's another kind of Buddhist example once a year there's something called a katina which is an alms giving ceremony in monasteries where um, you know people gather together the thing is you, you gather together and you give a robe one robe to a monk that's it and the monks decide who's going to get it that's the essence of it but of course around that it's a whole kind of palaver where people get all kinds of things they want to give and offer and the idea is that in the Buddhist understanding of it, you make more merit the more people you can include. So you're trying to get as many people to come and even if you give one stick of incense or just turn up, still you're, you're invited to be part of it. So the, these katinas have got quite a significance. And uh, in the Cambodian community in Britain, there were the three factions, you know, the Sihanouk, Pol Pot, and then the other faction. And they're all They'd all lost their relatives to the other side, you know. Every one of them. These people shot my cousin, my aunt, my grandfather, my uncle. This, they'd all, everybody had somebody who'd been killed in an obviously miserable way. And uh, say, so, well, okay. And there's these three factions with all the history, you know, of hatred and violence. And they're saying, well, so they say, one one person who is a kind of a pretty, uh, you know, he'd been a monk and, and so forth, and he said, "Okay, we can do a katina. Everybody, we can do a katina." So they could all get together around doing a katina, whatever their histories, and they could all agree this is a good thing to do. Yeah, and so just that coming together, and just now we. We try to make an effort just to forget the history. We're gathering together as an act of generosity and dana towards 
the peaceful ones or whatever, the pure ones, and they could do it. And it's things like that you know, whereby you know you can you can clear. That's to me is the value of uh, well, you know, monks, nuns, as you stand above the political thing and look, uh, look, I've got no weapons. You can kill me if you like, you know. I've got nothing. I've got no way of defending myself. Uh, but I've, you know, and so and you walk that and it acts as a sign because, uh, you know, I've got no history with anybody, violent history. And people recognize they actually, you know, there's got to be a place where the tit for tat violence and retribution and guilt and you did this and they didn't do that has to stop because you try and sort it out right and wrong you'll be here forever you know and the arguments will never cease we've got to say we just don't want to keep fighting and hating each other anymore it's just too wretched <laughs> let's start now and uh, when that can happen you know when that understanding can happen then you know it's possible but we cannot de- see because there's no defence there's no defence against uh, other people's violence. We cannot, ultimately. But if we discharge the fear in our own hearts, then something about that quality does help to, you know, cool things down, give us strength. I think every year now there's a pilgrimage to Auschwitz. People just go to Auschwitz and of all kinds, you know, every kind of person goes there and they just bear witness to camp is kept as it was. They just go there and sit and pray and recollect, you know, my father was a Nazi guard, you know, my father was a Jew, he died here. Here we are, we're bearing witness to this madness that takes over people. And uh, this is a beautiful thing to do, I think. Powerful act to do. It takes a lot of firm sentinel, right? Because you have to open up to the horror of just how there's nothing more brutal or bestial than a human being. And these were all just people. And that, that's how mad it can get. We have the possibility to be worse demons, and we have the possibility to be angels, and we can swing from one to the other. You know? I, I mean, I hear a lot of it, you know. It's the Vietnam thing, terrible things. People, Cambodia, terrible, terrible things. Nazi Germany, terrible, terrible, you know, people traumatized.
to find out you know, where, where the place it stops. Tibet, terrible, terrible things. Country, more or less gen- genocide. America, Native Americans, genocide. Australia, genocide. Um, you know, so slavery. <laughs> I mean, you can add it all up. But, but so you know, we just know just how, how, how bad it can be. And, uh, and you say, well, you know, there's only one refuge. Finally, only one refuge. Because when you look at it very close up, there's only one person that injects you with fear, and it's you. You know, I mean, you don't do it deliberately, but it's your system injects you with that. Is it possible to, you know, say we do what we can, but then to to realize? the literal poisoning of your heart and body through that chemical and through that reaction and which you think, well, I've just got to stop doing it I mean, I'll do the reasonable things and, uh, you know, what I can manage or at least some time a day, at least I've got to discharge and to know I can't feel safe on the street but I'll go home and lock the door or whatever then I, I can make a deliberate attempt to Clean and clean and clean and clean and clean. So you, you, you know, the heart comes back. It will. <laughs>